0: Directly to the younger members in our church, those of you fifth grade or younger, although everyone, of course, I hope, listens. Um, so uh, each week, what we are doing for the whole year is we're taking one simple truth uh, that we believe as Christians. And my hope for you is that at the end of the year, you have a much more solid grasp on the question what does it mean to be a Christian? What do we believe. And so starting last week and for another couple of weeks, we're specifically going to ask the question, what does it mean to be a human being? And so um, uh, we're going to discuss the an- one of the answers to that in just a second. But I do want to remind you that out on the table uh, are these table talks, which you can take home. Uh, and as a family or as a group, you can take this truth and dig into it more deeply, interact with what it means and how uh, we should respond to this as Christians, how we live this truth out, and actually this week, Chrissy's kind of given it a nice upgrade. It looks really good, actually. Uh, My strength is not making things look aesthetically pleasing, but she did a really good job on that, so please grab one of those, Um, but back to the question. What does it mean to be a human being? So if you would go to the next slide, this is one way we can answer that, to be a human being. Human beings were made to be in relationships, with other human beings. Before any sin had corrupted creation, God said that it was not good for man to be alone. To be human is to be made for human relationships. And I want to draw our attention to that, that in the beginning of Genesis, before human beings had ever sinned, this is the only part in that section we mercy, God say, this is not good. And what he said, it is not good, is to Adam being alone but why? It's because human beings were not meant to be alone. We were made for relationships. Next week we're going to be more specific on the way God provides those relationships, but this week I just want us to meditate on that this week. What does it mean to be a human being? It means to be made for relationships. How does that play out in the Christian life? Well, God doesn't just redeem us individually. He redeems us together, and he restores Those broken relationships, primarily with God, that relationship was broken when we sinned, but also our relationship with other human beings. How does God restore those, and and in what way, and what is his plan for us in relationship to other human beings? So I encourage you to take that uh, with you and and study that. But um, today we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8, so if you would turn to there. um, As you're turning, I want you all to... Consider a question and it's a very human question. It's one you probably heard before in movies Or speakers or other people ask and that is the question. Can a person really? change all Right, I'm sure most of you have heard someone ask this question before uh, all, all ages all people have asked this question and if you think about that I think that tells you something about us, right? I think deep down, every human being recognizes that we need to change. Something's not right. And so Christianity provides an answer to this question as well. Can a person really change? And the answer is no. Actually, it turns out that human beings possess nothing within ourselves to be able to change ourselves for the better. But, and that but isn't important here, and that is, but if a person repents of their sins and puts their faith in Jesus for forgiveness for their sins, God will change them. Not that they can be changed after that, not that they might be changed after that, but God will and does change them. So it's interesting, Christianity offers probably the gloomiest answer to this at first, but then the strongest hope for the question, can human beings really change? So what I'm going to do, as we look at Nehemiah 8, um, what you'll see with this section of scripture is it's kind of a case study in how God changes people. And by case study, I mean, I don't mean that this is a list of steps that if you follow exactly, God will you will be changed in this way, right? Uh, sometimes we, we tend to think that about God, that if we just follow step one through 10, uh, God has to do this. And the fact is that God's spirit is not bound by us. We don't control or manipulate him. And so God still has to change us. But what this is, is it's sh- it's a story of how God has changed his people in the past. And what we'll see in that is there are these tools and these patterns that God continually uses throughout all of history to change his people. And we're going to study that together. So I'm going to invite those of you who can to stand as we read God's word, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into it together. So Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday and the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and beside him stood... Matthew, Shemaiah, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Beni, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbathiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabab, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law, uh, from the law of God clearly, and they give sense to the people uh, understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priest and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in boost during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it was written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to the day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your guidance. And I pray that you would um, send your spirit to uh, convict us, Father. I pray that you'd send your Spirit so that we would submit to your Word, so that we would mourn over our disobedience to it, rejoice in our forgiveness from you, that we would obey beginning in each household, Father. I pray this for us. Amen. You can be seated. Now, there is a lot that I could preach on and want to preach on from Nehemiah 8. There are at least three full sermons from it, so um, everyone pack their lunch, right? Um, So I will be brief. I will give an overview, but I do encourage you all to go home as a group, as a family, read this chapter again this week and study what it says more deeply uh, and let it speak to you. Um, But because it is so much, I kind of want to give you the, the, the bullet points up front, right? So if that question is, how does God change his people? here Here's the answer. Here's the response that we give. So it should be on the bulletins as well, but the, the answer to that is this. As one man submit to scripture, mourn our disobedience, celebrate our forgiveness, and in each household obey. So we're going to talk about that today. But Before we dive into the fullness of the text, there is one specific phrase I want to draw our attention to, and that is right in the beginning where it says, as one man. You see, this one phrase continues throughout the rest of the chapter. Maybe not those words, but that idea. You see, when God changes his people, he changes his whole people, right? And so... A pattern that we see is when revival, in other words, when there's a dramatic change of heart among God's people, when that happens, it is when his people come together as one united, right? Kind of like what we were talking about with tabletop. We were not meant to be individuals. We were made for relationship. And so God has always, when he changes his people, changes them together. In the Old Testament, God's people meant the Israelites and those who became Israelites, right? But in the New Testament, in Ephesians, we see Jesus broke down that wall of hostility that existed between peoples and languages and people groups and male and female and, and, and all sorts of orders of society. He breaks it down for good and unites us together. And so the language God used to describe the church in the New Testament is one family where we— Uh, are adopted by God, and we are brothers with Jesus, one united family. And even more, uh, maybe even more descriptive, he describes this as one temple, where Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation, which each of us is built into one united temple. And in that united temple, the Holy Spirit dwells. God's presence exists in the world through his united people. Or uh, another description, the whole trinity God describes the church in, right, is, is that the peop- we as the church united together are the one body working together of whom Jesus is the head. And he loves the world through his one united body working together. And so how does God change his people? We see that throughout the rest of the chapter, that it is because they come together as one man, then they read and submit to the scriptures together as one, united together, then they mourn their own sin that they have done together, they mourn together, and then they rejoice together as they realize their forgiveness. And then the response to that is that they begin to live more faithfully, more obediently together. All right? Practically, what does that mean for us? That means there's no solo Christians out there, right? There's no loving Jesus but hating his church, as if it would be a flattering thing to say to someone, I like your face but not so much your body, right? I think intuitively we all know that that's kind of a disgusting thing to say. And so as Christians, we don't get to make the choice where we're like, I'm all for Jesus but not so much his church. God, I'm all for you being my father but I'm like... I don't like my siblings, right? No, God doesn't primarily change us alone. He brings us into a united family and he changes us together, right? And oftentimes in uncomfortable ways, oftentimes it's those people we least get along with that God is most using to call out the sin in our lives and teaching us to love people that are difficult to love, right? I think sometimes when we we don't like the church, we think of it as full of people who are hard to love and are hypocrites, and yes, that's the point, right? He's not calling you into this perfect body that loves each other well all the time. He's calling you into a group of not yet fully redeemed people who will sin against each other and must practice forgiving as they are practicing being forgiven, and in that process, he changes us. But how does he do that? Once we are together, united, once he brings us together into one body, what does he do next? And so let's draw our attention to the next thing we can see about how God changes us. And we see all in the rest of chapter 8 uh, uh, this extreme focus on the scripture of God. Right, All throughout the rest of it, we see God's people united together, submitting to the word of God. They have it read to them. In verse, in verse 3, we see that they attentively listen. Now, the description is one where they listen for several hours, early morning to midday. And let me tell you guys, what are they attentively listening to? The law of God is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they attentively listen. Can I tell you, I'm not sure how well I would do that, Right? This is not what I would call the interesting parts of the Bible, but they knew the word of this was the word of God, and therefore they must submit to it. And I want to talk with you for a second on, on this idea of listening to the scripture and our response to scripture. Um, because what I found with working with children as students is oftentimes they're more honest in in their reasons for sin than we are as adults. They haven't yet learned how to spin their own sin in a way that it sounds like a virtue right for instance in in asking them why aren't you reading the scripture they'll say it's boring right now I don't say the same thing but the way we say it is this I you know I'm just such a disciplined hard worker and really I just don't have time to read the scriptures right that's what we say now ignoring the fact for a second not a single one of us works so hard that they don't have a single minute in their day to read the scripture. Let's take it for as it is. What if every second of your day is packed with something else? How do you read? How do you submit to the scripture? Well, the preached word is in the heard word is supposed to be meditated on. As you're living your life, you hear the scripture that you've received on Sunday, and you're contemplating, how do I live this out? How do I submit to it? How do I be obedient to it? But we don't do that either, do we? Right? Like I said, and none of us is so full schedule-wise that they can't read the scripture, even if it's just a verse, right? So what's really keeping us from the scripture? Another excuse we give is, I don't get it. I can't understand it on my own. When has that ever stopped us from from talking about a thing? Think about that for a second. When have you ever been like, I don't know enough about this subject. Maybe I shouldn't talk about it or think about it. That's not true either. What keeps us from Scripture is that we find it boring. And so let's think about that for a second. Is the Scripture itself boring? No. No. It is full of the depths of human sin and depravity and the great heights of God's forgiveness and mercy and love. And it's full of drama. And it's this epic story about human beings have so fallen to our lowest point. And yet God reaches down and rescues us in these dramatic moments. And the Bible is full of beauty and excitement. We don't find it boring because it's boring. We find it boring because our hearts are deadened to it. Our eyes are blinded to it. The solution is not that the Bible needs to become more exciting. The solution is that we need to see it as it is, which is beautiful and exciting. But how do we do that? I mean, that's that's a real question. It doesn't change the fact that we still do find the Scripture boring, right? And so one of the things I tell The students all the time is that the most difficult time you'll have reading the Bible is the first time. After that, it gets easier each time. And the example I give this is something I fully believe because of my own life. The example I give is numbers. Every time I got to numbers in my Bible reading plan, I'm like, well, here's where things slow down, right? There's nothing I could find interesting about numbers. I was up to my seventh time reading through the Bible, and I was at Numbers, and I was dreading it again. And, and, and what I told the students was that that seventh time, there's something in the story of Korah that came alive into me. Now, if you're not familiar, uh, I don't want to give a whole sermon on that, but I encourage you to read it. But I just saw the beauty of, of how God could provide grace to even the children of a sinful man. And it, was, it was beautiful, and I saw it for the first time. But thing is, as I was studying for this this week, I realized that that also wasn't really the whole story. You see, yes, reading it one more time revealed something beautiful about it. But as I was kind of contemplating on this as one man part, I realized something else. You see, the other part to that story is I was talking with my friend that week and I told her, like I'm to numbers, it's boring. Yes, I'm going to just have to grit my teeth and get through it. And she said to me, I'm going to pray that God makes this section of Scripture come alive to you this time through. And it did. You see, we are not called to live our Christian lives alone. And so if you're reading through Scripture and you're just bored with it and you can't, I don't want you to just grit your teeth and bear through Scripture for the rest of your life. I want it to come alive for you. And so if you are struggling with the section of scripture, as we all are at parts, right, I encourage you to yourself, pray to God to make it come alive, and tell people around you, your friends and family, and have them pray that God will make this section of scripture come alive. And I think you might be surprised at how God answers that prayer, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when when faithfully following Jesus means entering into boredom. And that's okay. Boredom is not the enemy, right? But how else? How else do they respond to Scripture? They listen attentively. But then in verse 5, we see something else. Let me read that again for us. So verse 5 says this. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. How else do they respond to Scripture? They respond in reverence. You see, there are two central doctrines about the Bible that we hold as Christians. One is called the inerrancy. So we believe that the Bible is God's word, and as God's word, it is without error. It's a central truth we hold that many places confessing to be Christians uh, in the U.S. today uh, don't hold this. But here's the thing. You can't hold to the scripture not being inerrant for very long and actually submit to it, right? Because if this is full of errors, if it's not actually God's word, why am I obeying it, right? I can make up how I want to live because that's just as reliable as this. But as Christians, we believe this is God's word and therefore inerrant. And our churches and other conservative churches don't struggle with that as much. at least not in our teaching. But it's the next one that's important. And that is it because it is God's word, because it is inerrant, It is authoritative. In fact, it is the authority for Christian life. When we talk about leaders in the church, elders and pastors, they are leaders not because they hold authority in themselves. They are leaders because we take the teaching of Scripture to you, right? And it is the word of God that we submit to. That's why elders, they are required to be able to teach, It's not the man that has authority. It is God's word that has authority in our lives. That means in every single area of our lives. And one person I think of uh, specifically, and this is kind of tying in in that uh, as one man part, thinking through church history, one of my favorite people to read about is this man called Basil. He lived way back in the 4th century. But Basil was, he was very energetic man right when he before he became a christian he threw himself into education and becoming a speaker and a lawyer and he threw himself into sinning with full force right how he described himself but when he became a christian he was one of those christians that was like 110 from the beginning he's like how can i be a faithful christian He looked around and at the time the people thought to be most holy were those most separated from the world so he's like i know i'm gonna go be a desert monk first week as being christian thought he'd be a desert monk right Uh, And so he went out. He learned the thing is, as he read the scripture, he saw that most of the scripture talks about how we treat each other. He's like, "How do I do that alone in a desert?" So he came in. He gathered a bunch of Christians together, and he's like, "Let's live together. Let's live out the scripture together." Radical for his time. Today we call that monasteries, right? But the thing about that too is, he kept reading the scripture, and he realized, well, how are we supposed to share the gospel with? non-Christians if we're only surrounded by Christians. So he moved into the city and he loved his city well. And at each point of life, he listened to the scripture even when all the culture around him was telling him that, no, that's not right, that's incorrect, we're blind to the truth. But submitting to the scripture means submitting to the scripture, scripture even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when all of our culture and all of our common sense say this is wrong, right? Because as fallen human beings, we recognize that we are nearsighted, that our sin has blinded us to the truth. And therefore, submission to Scripture means we trust God, even when all of our fallen instincts point to something else, right? That's submission to Scripture. And I'm sure you can find many examples today where it is... um, where the culture disagrees with the, what the Scripture teaches, right? And we could go on to that, but more importantly, that that's good to know. That's good to know what the Scripture teaches. But more importantly, what I want you to think about is where the Scripture teaches what you yourself disagree with, because that's more important, right? That is more impactful. I know in the Sermon on the Mount, as we were teaching that with the students this past year, one of the things that kept popping up was this idea that, When someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, as a wrestler my whole life, do you know how easy that verse is to follow? You know how many of my natural instincts tell me that that's the right thing to do? Not a single one of them, right? And yet, if the scripture tells me to do it, then I do it. That's what I'm talking about. So how do we submit to the word? We attentively listen to it. And we respect it and we submit to it even when all of our instincts disagree with it. Because as we obey, we learn why it was there and God shows us why it was right to begin with. How else? In verse 6, we see that they respond with worship and in prayer. Often called spiritual breathings where we breathe in the word of God as we listen to it and we breathe out God's word back to him as we pray to him and as we sing his words back to him in our worship for him. One thing I encourage you to do as you're reading through the scripture is to pray God's scripture. And what I mean by that is, as you're reading, ask God to show you what it means. As you see his commands that you have disobeyed, repent and ask God to help you live more faithfully throughout. As you see things that show the beauty and the amazing mercy of God, praise him in that moment for us. And when we come together, praise God for what you've seen his scripture. Lastly, verse 7 and 8 teach us that we make disciples with the scripture. You see, they weren't just reading the word out, but those men who were more capable and knew the word a little better than those around them took the time to explain it to those around them. When we talk about making disciples, sometimes we make that more complicated than it is. Here's what making disciple means. You teach someone what the Word of God says and how it means they should live out their life. So as we are learning together in the sermon and our Bible studies, you then take that and help someone who is younger in the faith or less mature in the faith. And by the way, not just Christians. One of the things about evangelism is sometimes we work ourselves so up about apologetics. We think, I need to know every question that they're going to have and every logical answer for it to, to in order to share the gospel. You know how most people have come to Christianity through the centuries? It's by this. It's not by us. And in fact, what I encourage you to do as someone who is actually genuinely interested in Christianity, one of your friends that you've talked about, that you've shared the gospel with before, say, look this. Why don't we read the Bible together? As you ask questions, let me know. I'll try to get the answer for you. And what that's doing, as an old preacher saying is, it's not defending the Word of God. It's letting it loose. Imagine a cage lion, right? We're sitting there outside of the cage trying to defend it, and all we have to do is open up the bars. Let it do its job. Evangelism becomes so much easier when we let God do the work for us, which He promises to do. Now, moving from that, so as one man, submit to Scripture and then mourn our disobedience. You see, in verse 9, what we see is the natural response to submitting to Scripture is first sorrow. When people realize the depths of their own sin for the first time, this is the response. Because I was reading this, I even thought about that movie trope. I'm not just going to mention one because it's actually quite common. This idea where this, this person has become a monster and they're raging and they're raging, then all of a sudden they see their reflection. And it you see in their eyes, they realize for the first time what they have become. You see, this is what is happening there. Too often we don't think our sin is actually bad. We come up for excuses, yeah, I did that, but I mean everyone is, and it's not really that big of a deal. Why does God get so angry about it, right? And that leads to kind of a confusion when we're sharing the gospel. How can we preach about hell if we don't think we've actually ever done anything deserving of it? But when we submit to Scripture, God shows us who we really are for the first time. And other people, too. You see, sometimes imagine parenting your child, right? Imagine parenting your child and you, you want them to learn to clean their own room. And so you, you tell them, clean your room, clean your room. But you have to, each time you have to go and literally stand there so that they don't shove stuff under their bed and in their closet so they actually clean it. And every week you do that and you get tired because you have to make sure they do it. Then one week they're like, I cleaned it. And you're skeptical. You're like, okay, let's go see. And you're cleaning. And you go up to the room and you're looking under the bed and behold, they cleaned it right? Now, what is our tendency at that point? Our tendency, I imagine, is to double down and say, yeah, but I always have to tell you before, all right? To double down, make them feel more guilty for not having cleaned up in the past. That's natural, right? We want people to understand the seriousness of what they did wrong, and so we feel we have to beat them into it. What's interesting, though, is that is not the response of Scripture, what I found crazy about these verses is, as soon as they started mourning, the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah and the leaders were like, okay, stop mourning now. They're like, wait, shouldn't they feel sorry for a bit more? I mean, they were literally selling their people into slaves just a moment ago. Let's let them feel the sorrow, right? But That's not the response. Why? Because... A change, the way that God changes our hearts, the way he leads us to become obedient people is not primarily out of fear and guilt, although he will use those to lead us to repentance. Once we repent, though, he surprises us with his amazing grace and mercy. And then a life of obedience is lived out of gratitude as we have been surprised by the unlimited grace of God. That is what it means to be faithful as a Christian. And this nuance is important. The end result seems the same, right? Obedience one way or the other, whether it's out of fear and guilt or out of gratitude, but the nuance is important because the nuance is the gospel. God changes us by forgiving us. And that is amazing. This is, and keep in mind, guys, this is the Old Testament. If then that was true, how much more true when we have seen the sacrifice that God has given in His Son, Jesus? And what is the response to that surprising forgiveness? Feasting. Together. Come together, feast together, bring out the good food. Those of you who aren't prepared, give food to those people so that we can celebrate together the amazing mercy of God. And, and actually, one thing that I'm going to encourage you guys to do, so at the end of each year in May, we have an annual meeting where we give our reports of ministry, and we, we, just, we just kind of celebrate what God has done. This year, that might be a little sparse for some of our ministries. So I've been t- I was talking with Joe this week, and, and one thing I would encourage you to do is sit down this week and next week and pray to God, ask him, what have you done in my life and the people around me, their lives this year? How have you shown up in surprising ways? How have you called out sin and led us to repentance? How have you shown your mercy to us? Write those down, send those to us, and when we have that meeting, let's come together, let's feast and celebrate together. Because the response of a grateful heart to the surprising mercy of God is obedience. We see the people of Israel here they didn't just obey, they obeyed one of the least obeyed feasts in the Old Testament. This Feast of the Boost was almost never celebrated and every time it is, the Bible goes, hey, pay attention. They're not just faithful, they're they're incredibly faithful. right? They even pulled out, they like dusted off the old books and, and pulled them out. They're faithful in ways that, in, in this time it says that the, Israel hadn't been faithful since the days of Jeshua the Son of Nun. So that's Joshua, the son of Nun, since they first entered the land. Because the way God changes people is changing their hearts through his grateful mercy, and the response is obedience. But, and this is kind of our final point, I want us to look where that obedience begins, because I think you'll see something interesting here. So if you turn with me, I want to read it again in verse 13. It says this, um, Verse 13 says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Imagine the heads of the households in that crowd hearing the teaching, not understanding it, but having it taught to them. So, maybe the first time to understand this. So, unequipped fathers over their households don't understand the scripture what is their response after repentance and celebrating mercy it is obedience in their households so these unequipped fathers go to ezra so that they can get equipping to teach their own households this is something true in the old testament the new testament and ever since the time of the writing of the new testament to now and that is this When God brings revival and repentance to its people, it shows up in the home, right? And one thing that I'm always saying as your pastor of student-children discipleship is that I'm here to support you as parents as you are the primary discipler of your kids. To put that more plainly, that means whose responsibility is it to disciple your kids? Yours, right? How do you be a faithful parent? You disciple your kids into maturity of faith. Now, it, we could analyze the numbers of the church in America to death, um, but every trend says the same thing: that as our as the kids get older in our society, less and less of them are continuing in the church and the faith. So you ask, God, ask why, and the question is. Or sorry, the answer is, it is a failure of discipleship. But it's not quite so simple as to say parents aren't discipling their kids. That's true. Um, but I've wrestled around with this for Joe. And we, we've we talked about it back and forth. And and here's the full truth to that. Parents don't know how to disciple their kids, right? Me giving you the command, go disciple your kids, is, is uh, a lot like the Pharisees in Jesus' day where he said they threw this uncarryable weight around people's necks and then made them carry it themselves. I don't want to do that to you. I understand discipleship is hard. You may not know how to do that. And in fact, in Nehemiah's day, the fathers didn't know how to do it either. And so they went to Ezra. And so that's our job. That's my job is to help teach and equip you and those more mature in the faith to teach and equip you. you. See, I'm talking about parents, but none of us actually gets off on this command because as a church, we come around parents and help them in that discipleship process. If your kids are no longer in the house, pull in some younger parents and, and pray with them and be there to give advice when they ask for that. Be there to watch their kids and be a safe place for them when they need to be together as husband and This is what it looks like to help. And and for us as a church, that means I want to make it as simple as possible for you. We want to make it as simple as possible for you. That's why we have Sunday school and children's church and youth group and these table talks. is so that you, discipling your parents, can simply be having a meal together as a family and saying, hey, what did we learn in the sermon? What did you learn in Sunday school? What did you learn in youth group? And digging in there, in their lives and saying, okay, how do you live this out now? And on, and on these, I made it even more explicit. I gave you a head, a heart, a hand, a feet question to dig into each other's lives, right? But as much as we do that, as much as we come around to support you, you are responsible to disciple your children. Now, I also want to put this in context with the whole verse, right? Because you may be feeling convicted this moment. You may be feeling a bit defeated at at the failures that you have in your life and fulfilling this command, but remember what the scripture says. Mourn that. Be truly sorrowful for your sin, us together, right? But don't linger there, because God's grace is enough. And when we come to him and we repent of our sins, what we'll see,